everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And we are back. We probably sound a little bit different. I probably sound less like I'm in an aquarium, and that is because we are recording in person. Yay! The province of Ontario has allowed for social bubbles uh-huh. to occur, wherein like people can, you know, choose other people to be close to. It's like with my cell phone, you know, you have a my 10 list. Yes, exactly. 10 favorite people that you contact the most. We're in bubbles of 10. Yeah. And so Andrea and I decided to be in each other's bubbles. Um, we are recording in the Rue Morgue Lounge, so it will sound a little bit different, probably a bit more echoey, because we are still practicing a good amount of distance between us okay. uh, so that we're still being safe. Um, but also, bunkered in. Well, I was going to say, the vault where we usually record, if you've ever been to the Rue Morgue Manor, and I do give tours, it's very <laughs> much a vault. It's got yes. a big, heavy door. It's a concrete and tin can. I don't know how comfortable I'd be recording this particular episode in that environment. No, I'd probably try to escape at some point. <laughs> You'd have to stop me. Um, but we are continuing with our Summer of Plague series. And a lot of shit has happened since we last recorded. Yeah. The pandemic is ongoing. Um, we're still attempting to be as safe as we can uh, as a society with some parts of us reopening. Um, and then, of course, the death of George Floyd reignited, not even reignited because there was still so much activism work going on, but I think it brought a lot of attention, a lot of public attention um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh-huh. a movement incredibly important, something Andrea and I both stand behind as allies. And it's really kind of ratcheted up, I think, so much tension and so much of the discussion going on in the world mm-hmm. about how privilege affects people, about how groups are marginalized, about just racism systemic, deeply embedded racism. Yeah, indeed, like privilege that's so ingrained that you might not even know it because that is kind of a luxury of privilege. That is kind of a nice side effect. And it's something that anyone who identifies as an ally or would like to needs to confront in a very real and tangible way. So, of course, not happy that any of this is going on, but at the same time, it's been really wonderful and inspiring to see what a worldwide movement this has become. You know, like you would hear, we're all in this together with regard to the pandemic, but now we're hearing it with regard to civil rights. And that's a cool thing. Yeah. And I think the pandemic has pushed so many people, like our backs are against the wall in so many different For ways sure. that we are forced to confront these deeply rooted issues in our society. Mm -hmm. The fact that we live in a colonialist patriarchy, I think, speaks volumes to this. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's kind of a like now or never. We need to confront this and changes need to be made. Um, There's lots of great resources out there. Um, A lot of people kind of talking about if if you're white, how you can help, uh, different ways you can be involved in the movement. So we really encourage everyone to go seek those out. Don't bug your black friends or anyone to like teach you how to do it. Go do the research. Mm -hmm. That's what we're about at Faculty of Horror. You've got Google. You can do this. Yeah. Figure out how you can help. How can you be part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for Alex and I, in our own little way, uh, I've always thought of this podcast as activism, as uh, as resistance. You know, it's work we're doing to kind of open up space of discussion around the genre that we love in ways that we want to talk about it. And so today, I am so excited. We're recording a lot of content today, first mm-hmm. of all. Uh, for those among you who are patrons, there is a lot of bonus episodes coming your way after we have introduced each other to our bubbles. But today we're going to talk about 10 
Cloverfield Lane. And this was a selection based on, obviously, our Summer of Plague selection. We wanted to give almost like a trilogy, Mm -hmm. so to speak, where, you know, we were starting with the onset and the initial panic of something like this. And then there's the waiting out phase, the hiding out phase, the buttoning down and surviving phase. And so we chose this movie to illustrate that. Yeah. And I know certainly with everything kind of going on in the world right now, and we picked this film, you know, a while ago, months months ago uh, to do as part of this series. Initially, I was like, oh God, is this the right movie to be doing? And I don't know. And then going back and watching it and thinking about it, I think it speaks to a lot of issues within white culture and Mm -hmm. communities and the privilege. So I think it makes for a good discussion, if not directly addressing everything going on in the world. It certainly gave me pause and made me think about some stuff. And I think we're both really excited to share kind of where we've come to with this. All right. Well, shall we descend? I don't want to. I'm scared. Don't be scared. We can do this. This is 2016's 10 Cloverfield Lane. with Michelle packing her bags and hitting the road. We learn that she's leaving her partner, Ben. After being run off the road by a truck, she awakens changed to a wall in a bunker. She's been abducted by Howard, who claims that he rescued her from her car and brought her to safety. He also claims there's been an attack and that the air in the atmosphere is now unsafe. She remains unconvinced until a woman with a scabby face begs to be let in. Also occupying the bunker is Emmett, a local guy who helped Howard build the bunker, and he forced his way in when the attack hit. Howard is outwardly resentful of Emmett's presence and is particularly prickly about him having any contact with Michelle. Eventually, Howard is able to win Michelle's trust and the three become comfortable together until Michelle discovers evidence linking Howard to the disappearance of a young girl. Emmett and Michelle hatch a plan to escape, resulting in Emmett being shot and killed by Howard. Michelle gets away and makes it to the surface where she discovers extraterrestrial ships and life forms exterminating humankind. As she drives off, she hears of a resistance zone on the radio and heads in that direction. And what a fucking direction. Oh my God, this film takes us in so many twists and turns and misdirects. Uh, There's several plot tensions that Mm -hmm. just keep me going. And I was telling Alex before we started recording that, you know, I put this film in my top 10 of the last decade, Mm -hmm. I think it was what we did for the Patreon. And I was almost nervous putting it on. I was like, is it going to be as good as I remembered? Is it going to age well? Oh, God, it's so fucking good. It's really good. And I hadn't seen it since theaters. It was one of those films I've been like, I should rewatch that. I really enjoyed it. I want to go back and rewatch it. And I just never fucking got to it. Mm-hmm. So it was um, a real pleasure to kind of revisit it. It's a very watchable film. Mm-hmm. It has great tension, great ideas and complications mm-hmm. within it. And of course, we cannot 
begin this discussion without talking about how it's part of the Cloverfield universe. Yes. So I'm going to be really honest right now in this moment. Um, So the first film, Cloverfield, from 2008, again, we don't like to get too hard into the binary of it's a good movie or it's a bad movie. But in my social circles, I have been known to call Cloverfield Suckfield. I just can't with that movie. It's found footage. It's about this Cloverfield monster attacking New York. It's kind of a very post 9-11 idea of a found footage horror sci-fi film. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's about a group of like 20 something people in New York were trying to escape and trying to figure out what's going on but oh no one of them ghosted a girl and oh no he maybe really loves her but oh no she lives in a penthouse rescue and I was just like maybe if your rich girlfriend did not live in a penthouse this would not be an issue but I digress I know a lot of people really like it it definitely uh, had a bit of a cultural zeitgeist around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was better in concept than it was in execution for me. Okay, It's definitely been part of the kind of J.J. Abrams stable of stories. Yes, yes. I quite enjoyed it. It's been a while since I've seen it. I remember thinking that I found the characters unlikable, mm-hmm. but I thought it, it did well with the found footage uh, conceit uh, it was believable. I think we talked about that when we were talking about Wreck, is, you mm-hmm. know, when, when there are cameras involved, there should be good reasons why there are cameras involved and shooting what it is it's shooting. My feelings about the franchise as a whole uh, become complicated with these two sequels, reimaginings, other entries to the universe. But let's talk about that. Yeah, and I think the kind of J.J. Abrams-ness of it, um, Cloverfield was made um, by Paramount under the Bad Robot a production company, which is J.J. Abrams, mm-hmm. you know, to me, known for Felicity, uh, for many others known for Lost and Star Trek and Star Wars and all the other stuff he's gone on to do. Yeah. Um, and the thing about Abrams is I'm not a huge fan of his stuff. I like his ideas. Mm-hmm. I like that he always kind of has a, a marketing angle to it, like the conspiracy, the uh, misinformation, as we were talking about And certainly in the original Cloverfield from 2008, director Matt Reeve said in several interviews um, that there's a scene where this group of characters are trying to get across one of the bridges out of Manhattan, trying to escape the monster. And the guy who's holding the camera kind of flashes by the crowd, and there's another guy in the crowd who's also holding a camera. And, you know, to Reeves, it was like, oh, this is just one story within endless amounts of stories of people who are being affected by this monstrous invasion. Okay. Um, So I think that's kind of where you get this splintered off story element to it. That's how, you know, you can kind of ascribe these sequels as, we're going to talk about it right now, but to me, it feels a little bit like, you know, in the later Hellraiser films, when they're just like, it's a script and then something's happening with like a cult or an online video game and then a, a fucking Cenobite shows up. And that's them shoehorning the kind of Hellraiser franchise. Okay, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I was wondering if there was a term for that. I was like, it's not retconning, but shoehorning is the word that comes to mind where there's a script and they're like, how could we sell this? Could be fine on its own, but if we stamp it within a franchise, then it'll work. I definitely get the sense that that's going on here and I wanted to read up on it more, but I don't have the words. (laughs) Uh, I read up on it a bit. Okay. So 10 Cloverfield Lane was an original script called The Cellar Mm -hmm. by Josh Campbell and Matt Strukin. 
And it was shopped around in 2012. And then again, it was picked up by Paramount kind of under the bad robot banner. Um, and then it was changed to a Cloverfield film and it was shot under the name Valencia. Right. Um, and really this kind of shoehorning in of it, I think just speaks to me of what we've talked about before on this podcast, that yes, movies are part of our imagination and they're an art form and all of that amazing stuff, but they're also part of business. They are an industry. They are a billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you have a really great original script, that's more of a risk because, you know, executives assume that the audiences won't know it. They'll go see something familiar rather than try something new. Right. So I thought of Hellraiser. I think also perhaps Saw. Did that happen with Saw? I'm not sure. I'm not as familiar with the Saw franchise. And I truly love some of those later Hellraiser sequels. I know. It's not necessarily a terrible thing. I just wish the phenomenon had a name. If you're listening and you're in the biz and you know of a term for these shoehorned... I feel like it's just called marketing. Come on. Um, So yes, according to my research, it was only after development was underway on this that the filmmakers quote-unquote noticed core similarities to Cloverfield. And to quote producer J.J. Abrams in an interview that I will link to in the show notes, quote, the spirit of it, the genre of it, the heart of it, the fear factor, the comedy factor, the weirdness factor, these were so many elements that felt like the DNA of the story were in the same place that Cloverfield was born out of. Translation, marketing. I absolutely agree with all that. I don't entirely by it. And it's worth mentioning that insofar as this film was very, very well received, a lot of people had a problem with the ending Mm. because the ending, a lot of people claimed that the ending didn't fit. It didn't fit with the tension. It didn't fit with the themes. I'm okay with it. It complicates some of the themes. Um, I like that it confirms some things while questioning others, and it does provide a nice resolution to Michelle's character arc, in my view. But uh, I have seen a fan edit of the ending that um, a lot of people said solves everything, which is just that as she's driving off toward Houston, Mm -hmm. having made the decision to fight with the resistance instead of seeking safety, uh, there's a giant creature in the distance. And they're like, oh, okay, that fixes it. Isn't that in the original? I feel like that's in the version I saw. I I feel like I saw like an outline of like this big shape. Oh, shit. Okay. Heading towards Houston. And I assume that was just another Cloverfield monster. Yeah. Well, it's not even shoehorned. It's more like tacked on. Yeah. Like you could turn this movie off with her escaping and have it be a fully contained great film. Well, and I mean, the fact that the Cloverfield monster is just a big jumble of CGI. It's like we could have a whole movie about me and Andrea and you can just have the Cloverfield monster walking in the background, you know? Yeah, same uh, same universe. Yeah, we'll make it our Christmas card. <laughs> um, there was a... Another sequel uh, that came out in 2018 called The Cloverfield Paradox. I knew about that in development as being called The God Particle. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. And I um, was definitely very curious about it. It was released on Netflix, uh, and then it got very bad reviews or just like just that it was a silly film and I just kind of never made time for it and then I figured if we're gonna do this episode I might as well watch it yeah and I did and I didn't hate it it's very silly it's a little event horizon a little um something else and then just kind of goofy yeah Uh, and it's very strange because I think it's quite well directed and it's a, a pretty incredible cast and I think it just, it's a bit too 
all over the place. Yeah, I feel the same way. I remember I, w- I was starting to work with Rumorg when it came out, and again, we're going to talk about the marketing behind the entire Cloverfield universe in a second, but um, obviously I wasn't able to get a crack at it before it came out, and then I saw it, and I was like, okay just fine. It had some internal logic. It's just when it executed the scarier aspects of that internal logic, it kind of left me cold. Um, Basically, it's a film that has to do with um, a group of people in space who need to save humanity. They need to find an infinite energy source, basically. And all shit has broken loose on Earth. Everybody's going to war and it's down to this space crew who are made up of members of different nations. So, you know, they've got kind of like national conflicts in there, but they cause kind of a rift in in uh, the fabric of time, so to speak. Different dimensions start crossing over each other. And yeah, I don't know. I just felt like things would happen and characters would not be reacting in a way that I considered reasonable. And so I found it a really frustrating watch Mm -hmm. to the point that I didn't actually finish it. I finished it. Yeah. And again, nice little Cloverfield monster popping up right at the end. Right at the end. Right at the end. Stop doing that. I was just like, okay. But fine, it, it was a bit of a confusing watch, but uh, there you go. That's that's the Cloverfield um, universe. I would invite you, if you are so inclined, because I did it a couple nights ago, right before I fell asleep, to wander onto the Cloverfield Reddit. Uh, uh-huh. There's a lot of active theories. People have just discovered some new Twitter accounts that have popped up, uh, like, recently, within the last couple weeks. Really? Uh, indicating that there could be something more from this universe. So, mm-hmm. you know... JJ. Cool. Well, let's talk about that because this franchise has a presence on the internet. Mm -hmm. It is actually a really singular example of really interesting online marketing strategies. And that goes all the way back to the very first Cloverfield. And um, full disclosure, do you remember the Batcave? Yes. Once upon a time, I had a little tiny YouTube channel. I was was a guest on it. You were a guest on it. And I, I think that still goes down in history as my most watched episode, I think I might have done a dozen, maybe 20 random episodes. Uh, I was working at Rumorg, but I was working reception. I wasn't writing for the magazine. I, I wasn't getting a whole lot of interest in my writing, so I thought this might be a different avenue to do stuff. And I did an episode on 10 Cloverfield Lane where I actually go through the entire marketing online strategy thing. So as much as it pains me, I will link it in the show notes and you can watch and have a laugh. And my skin looks so firm and smooth. Oh, this is only like four years ago and I was watching it and I was like, oh God, I was so young. It just made me feel like Rue Morgue put so many fucking lines on my face. He's an editor just... <laughs> sucks the youth out It really, really <laughs> does. But anyway, to summarize that episode, when it came to the original Cloverfield, a mysterious teaser trailer was released as well as some web content. So this isn't just kind of like social media teasing. There were websites. There was a site about a drink called Slusho and then its parent company called Tagruato. And there was also a monthly manga series that was launched called Cloverfield Kishin, which dealt with something called the Chuai Incident where an oil spill in Japan that was linked to Tagruato caused a shape in the water 
which then led up to the first Cloverfield movie. It was like a meta story that suggested the origin to the creatures in the first film and served to build kind of a virtual universe for these films to inhabit. And of course, as Alex just said, it, people ran with it. Um, there was a subreddit devoted to it. This is, you know, this was a couple of years ago, so uh, not so much on Instagram or whatever, <laughs> but uh, but definitely on Reddit, definitely on stuff like 4chan. And then when it came to 10 Cloverfield Lane, they launched a website at teguato.jp that had elements of a VR game, and it revealed backstory information about Howard Stambler and his daughter. Now, the site is still up, but there's just kind of a splash page. So something is occupying the domain. Mm-hmm. It's not a 404 error per se, but there's an error message that's like a mock browser incompatibility message, and there's nothing to see there anymore, as far as I know. However, I did collect some resources as to Cloverfield clues all over the internet for that YouTube video. And so there's actually a channel called Cloverfield Clues where people make videos about this. If you're interested in these theories, these conspiracy theories, they're out there. I will link them in the show notes and you can check them out. Anyway, I feel like this particular campaign worked especially well for 10 Cloverfield Lane because one of its predominant themes to me deals with conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, what we do with the onslaught of information coming in every which way. And so to me, the franchise just really peaked in the middle. What's the difference between disinformation and misinformation? It has to do with its intention. So disinformation started appearing in the English dictionary in the late 80s, and it refers to inaccuracies that are deliberately spread spread on purpose. Misinformation is a close relative, but the defining feature of disinformation is that it's deliberate. So a newspaper that runs a bad story is spreading misinformation, and that might be accidental, but if the source of that has an agenda, it is disinformation. Got it. So it stems from the intention. Exactly. And, you know, I think there is a lot of stuff that kind of feeds in from, uh, again, Mr. J.J. Abrams, as we've already mentioned, um, certainly kind of when the first Cloverfield came out. He was, I guess, almost at the peak of Lost, of his kind of fame. So 2008, so Lost ran, you know, the early 2000s. And I didn't get into it, but I remember the conversation around it. People were so invested in this group of people stranded on an island and what the hell was actually going on there. Those poor people. Those poor people. They never got what they wanted. Yeah. Matthew Fox is a piece of shit, so. Is he really? Yeah. What did he do? Uh, You can read about it. Okay, okay. Anyway, so just before Cloverfield came out, kind of around the peak of Lost, before people got very irritated with the ending of it, uh, in March 2007, J.J. Abrams gave a TED Talk. We'll link this TED Talk uh, in the show notes so you can check it out. It's about 18 minutes. He's very charming and it's, a, you know, lots of nice things, but he's talking about kind of what is at the center of so many of the stories he wants to tell. Mm-hmm. And that is what he calls the mystery box. So for him, the mystery box is something that is not known. It is about infinite possibilities, hope, and potential. So by withholding information, that actually forces the audience to engage more. You know, you could think of it in a horror sense, like, because we don't see the Blair Witch, we actually, if it works for you, you actually get a lot more out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your imagination works much harder. And to Abrams, mystery is more important than knowledge. Mm -hmm. By defining something really specifically 
you take away so many opportunities. For him, it was always about kind of that diversion, what you think you're going to get versus what you're really getting. Okay. So by creating this brand, this Cloverfield brand, which off the top of your head, you're probably thinking, okay, I, I know it's like an alien, it's a monster, it's an invasion, it's something. Mm -hmm. What you're actually getting, and certainly in 10 Cloverfield Lane, is a story about hiding, about abuse, about fear, mm -hmm. about power, about so many other things we're going to talk about. Um, you know, in Cloverfield, it's about, you know, these 20-somethings kind of watching their lives fall apart and trying to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. um, Cloverfield Paradox, I think, is in many ways about regret and pain mm -hmm. and parenthood. Messy, but it, I think it's in there. And I think what's actually kind of interesting and where I've wound up with 10 Cloverfield Lane and I think it's kind of a perfect example of this mystery box even though you know Abrams is just a producer is that the bunker itself is kind of a mystery box yeah. they are in a literal mystery box and the reason I'm bringing up Abrams the mystery box it ties into Cloverfield very well but also in terms of marketing J.J. Abrams now has that name kind of like Wes Craven did in the 90s mm. you can say like produced by Wes Craven yeah. produced by J.J. Abrams and you kind of have a sense of what you're going to get. He has that name recognition. But I think this is possibly the most sinister use of the mystery box. Oh, yeah. And maybe the most progressive. Yeah. Well, definitely the darkest. Like, 10 Cloverfield Lane, he was coming hot off the heels of Star Wars, sure. The Force Awakens, which was, yeah. it's not at all my shit, but it is the kind of thing that will catapult you into the middle of the mainstream where you can demand crazy exorbitant budgets. This thing was made for next to nothing. As great as it looks, it's a teeny little ensemble cast and that's kind of bad robots shit. It's like that's where Paramount gives the micro budget high concept stuff. Yeah, and I think they definitely get that there has to be a high concept element and then it's the bait and switch mm -hmm. of like, but actually it's a very human story and it's about fear and yep. all of these other really complicated messy things within us but if you kind of get that entryway saying like, I'm going to go see a monster movie but actually it's about all these other things yeah. which is what we always talk about in the faculty uh -huh. horror it's also so economical uh one of the reviews i read about this and, and it's such a great observation is that like there is zero time wasted any single moment that the camera lingers you know that's going to come into play later uh between the shower curtain the dry ice thing what is it it's like a blowtorch for ice yeah it's like a, it's a thing i don't know it's cool so i posed this question to andrea early this week and didn't quite get a response. So I figure we're going to talk about it now. Oh yeah, I thought that was deliberate. Because I love when you do, I feel like you've done that for the past handful of episodes. It's just like, question. I was like, let's put a pin in that. And I'm glad because I'll be prepared because I'm not that good on my feet. Yeah, and I was kind of assuming you were doing that, hoping you didn't just ignore me. But good, we haven't ignored each other. <laughs> so this kind of stems from the very beginning of the film. Yes. And I find the opening of this film very interesting because there's almost no ambient noise. It's all of this like big score that's kind mm -hmm. of accompanying mm -hmm. it. And basically Michelle is leaving her home. She's putting an engagement ring there. She's grabbing the bottle of whiskey and she's getting the fuck out. Mm -hmm. She drives and then when the seemingly her now ex-partner Ben calls, mm -hmm. voiced by Bradley Cooper. Doesn't right. help this case. Nope. <laughs> 
<laughs> go bug gaga right there was a couple cues i picked up on and again it's you get out of a film what you put in and your yeah. personal experience and stuff like that and i read the beginning of this film is very coded that there was an element of abuse in this relationship that she was leaving and then as i kind of start to research and a lot of when i start to research something it's reading reviews mm-hmm. and i, I have not read every review of 10 cloverfield lane mm-hmm. so i'm probably you know bit off on this but certainly the ones i read the male critics if they mentioned it at all mentioned that she was leaving someone uh-huh. she was getting out of a relationship she's out of there yes okay the couple female critics i read mm-hmm. picked up on an element of abuse mm-hmm. that she was leaving the cues for that for me were the hastily leaving mm-hmm. and then the the line that ben says something like couples fight mm-hmm. and there's something so dismissive about it and minimizing mm. it just feels so icky okay. when he says it and you know abuse comes in many forms she doesn't need to have a black eye to show it mm-hmm. this is the kind of nice thing about film you can have text and you can have subtext mm-hmm. and i think if you know you pick up on something about abuse at the beginning or you don't it still works as a film totally but i was curious if there was anything in there you picked up on since you asked me that i've been turning it over and over in my head and i have been applying it to my own personal life because there was one relationship in my life that i would consider abusive and i left that relationship in much the same way Michelle did. Uh, He was away, I packed up my shit and I got out of there. Because of the nature of that relationship, um, a confrontation on my way out was something that I wanted to avoid. However, that was also perhaps my only relationship other than the one I'm in now where I was cohabitating. And so as a result, subsequent relationships where we broke up, I wasn't leaving because we weren't living together, so to speak, you know? And surely all of my past relationships, I can identify abusive behavior. I can think of an ex where I'm like, he is an expert at gaslighting. He Mm -hmm. gaslit the living fuck out of me and I'm sure he does it left, right, and center to this day to whoever it is he's with. Would I construe that relationship as abusive even though his behavior was sometimes abusive? Like, it's kind of a slippery thing. Um, Where I land with Michelle is when she's talking to Emmett later and they're discussing regrets, this is where she kind of really shows her hand. And this is that same character arc that I was saying that she really comes full circle in the end. She doesn't talk about regretting being with Ben. She doesn't talk about ignoring red flags or just like the Mm -hmm. kind of abuse rhetoric I'm familiar with for like survivors of abusive relationships. She describes a completely different incident in which she felt powerless, which was witnessing a man hit his daughter Mm -hmm. in public and how that reminded her of watching her dad beat her brother. And she tells Emmett, I quote, I do what I always do when things get hard. I just panicked and ran. So while I feel like her behavior is definitely 100% the result of abuse of her father, where Ben is in that, I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. Because you can carry that abuse and it can instigate the same fight or flight reactions for the rest of your life. And that's what she's carrying with her. So I feel like it's it's not a non-issue, but... I like how it's open-ended. Yeah, I think that kind of goes to speak to that mystery box element Mm. of it. I think it's potentially there. It was there for me. Um, It certainly resonated with me in my own life. But again, I don't think it affects the kind of big takeaways from the film. Yeah. I just think that Michelle has so much mystery to her, but you also get to know her quite well. Mm -hmm. I think there's a really lovely balance there. I think that's there, you know, present with all three main characters. You're getting to see certain very specific aspects of them. Just enough. Just enough. I want to know more. 
but I don't need to know God. Oh, I know. And it unspools in such a satisfying way. Like when you're watching the film, it's, is the threat real? Is Howard to be trusted? And then back to the threat. And it all just ties up so nicely. It reminds me a lot, her relationship particularly with Howard, about the way that, certainly speaking for myself, yeah. I've made concessions about things because in many ways it's more comfortable to make the concession. Keeping the peace is the safest the play peace. always. Yeah. And it kind of makes me sick looking back on it. Mm. But I'm also, you know, as I've been in therapy, learning to be gentle with my past self. Well. It's always that tension of I can just make it through another hour, another day, another week. Mm -hmm. By agreeing to this. Mm -hmm. And it's so icky. I also read her behavior as, I feel like she tested her limits. And I'm not saying that as an asking for it, victim blamey, no. instigate kind of way. But I feel like I was always with her in that she's not sure what the rules are. It's very awkward. It's very weird. Why would Howard say specifically that Emmett is not to touch her? So her decision to touch Emmett with her hand at the table was just kind of, you know, she pushed those buttons and then she smoothed it over. I feel like that was such a beautiful display of letting Howard think he was in control of the situation when she was really pulling the strings. She's the one in peril and I'm not disputing that, but she spelled it out for herself and for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I always thought those kind of, if you need to think of them as many Manipulative. She's certainly, you know, manipulating Howard. Mm -hmm. They are towards an end goal. So that dinner table scene, like the first one they have, mm -hmm. she's provoking him in order that he get close enough to her mm -hmm. so that she can pinch his keys. That's right. That's what I do. So let's talk some more about Howard. Let's talk about nice guys. We need to talk about nice guys. Quote, unquote, nice guys and nice guy rhetoric. Now this is a thing. These aren't just two words, nice and guy. Nice guy, quote unquote, has emerged as a trope to refer to cis men who employ manipulative tactics to seduce women and then complain that the women never go for nice guys. That is kind of one aspect of it, but the whole nice guy rhetoric encompasses a whole lot of behavior in that same space. These are the guys who complain about being friend zoned. They are expert gaslighters. They like to blame women for their own abuse or heartbreak because why don't women ever go for nice guys like me? And they're not nice guys at all is the irony, but they're too self-interested and self-centered to realize their bad behavior. And it's not quite incel, but I feel like it's the training wheels along that path, this kind of nice guy rhetoric. I first became aware of this trope through a hilarious subreddit that's called r slash nice guys, in which a whole bunch of women take screen grabs and post them of guys who make unsolicited advances to them and then flip out when they're declined. Like within four lines, they go from, I think you're lovely, we should go out sometime to fuck you whore, you're ugly, fuck you, I was never interested in any way, haha. It, in three seconds flat. And I've been there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been there. Yeah. And so seeing those screen grabs is really delicious to me to laugh with other women about it because it's not funny at the time. No, and, and I think because it's, again, a manipulation tactic, it's mm -hmm. an emotional manipulation. It's, you know, in some ways emotional abuse if it's ongoing. It's hard to believe that they're the ones at fault. Yeah. Because you often question yourself as a woman. That's what did right. I do? Did I lead him on? What? Oh God, I feel terrible and I I cause this and then I think this kind of opening up of the quote unquote nice guy TM it's positioning it as a thing a mm -hmm. thing that we can all kind of now know um, we've seen it memed we've seen it you know used in all kinds of ways it's now something that we know oh that's a huge red flag yeah it's not necessarily something I did it's on them and I know that I have to walk away now mm -hmm. 
Um, there's a hilarious cartoonist on Instagram who makes doodles containing nice guy rhetoric. I think you follow you awards for good boys. Yes. Not nice guys, but good boys. I'll link both that and the uh, subreddit in the show notes because they're good for a lull. But anyway, we hear a lot of nice guy rhetoric come out of Howard. And I, I wasn't aware of the nice guy trope when I first saw this film. But when you hear, I'm going to keep you alive. Oh, yeah. I wrote that down too. It's a nice guy way of denying her freedom and her autonomy. I'm helping you. You're lucky to be here at all. He spits these and it's so fucked up because you really get the sense that he means it. He's been drinking that Kool-Aid, he truly thinks that he is helping her. And I find that so chilling. Yeah, in the scene I remember when I first saw it and then on the rewatch, the pit in my stomach like opened up and swallowed me whole during that game of charades <sighs> with Little Women. Yeah. All right, uh, second word. Ooh, uh, Michelle is a girl, a girl, a child. Um, uh, uh, she's a girl. Um, no, she's, she's older, see? So she is a... Uh, uh, little princess? Um, no, it was woman. Um, little woman. He's a pedophile. Yeah. With Howard, there's a lot we don't know, but he's obviously unable to grasp why it's not okay to abduct someone and hold them against their will, even if it's for their own good, as construed by him. And he has such a childish nature in so many ways. Um, and he infantilizes Michelle, just in the way that you said, that password game, he's unable to call her a woman. Yeah. I was just fucking cringing. And even Emmett was like, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't finish yeah. high school, but that's like, fucked up. I don't know if you noticed in her quote-unquote room uh, that she's in, there's like a wall that's kind of like half-painted pink. Mm -hmm. The magazines that are just called Teenager, which I greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> couldn't get those rights to YM, guys. Um, but uh, that kind of, again, we're giving these clues that maybe it's around his daughter and then it's around this girl he abducted and he seems to be regressing Michelle mm -hmm. into the age that he prefers. Would definitely prefer. Yeah, I got that sense too. It's terrifying. And Howard, like the fact that he has sympathetic moments throughout it is just really blech. And I think that's what this film does well is it kind of complicates him and you're kind of back and forth on him because mm -hmm. you're, you're there with Michelle and he's saying, I'm going to keep you alive. And you're like, oh, oh, no, Jigsaw. I will run out of here with this bear trap on my head. Yeah. And then when he, when she gets the proof, when she sees it's not the pigs that do it for her, uh -huh. it's the woman. That's right. And when she sees that, it's that compromise. Uh -huh. To use that term kind of generally in this yeah, case, yeah. it's that compromise. Okay, I'm going to put up with him yeah. with a good amount of wariness yeah. and everything's copacetic for a while uh -huh. um, until she can't anymore. And then I think the final 10 minutes were with Howard in this film mm -hmm. really confirm all mm -hmm. the fears we had, all those things she kind of let slide and was putting up with. Mm -hmm. I also think it's so tragic. Like Again, going back to your question about her relationship with Ben, she has clearly grown up in an environment where her paternal figure was abusive. Mm -hmm. She's coming out of a relationship where I'm not about this, I'm just going to get the fuck out. And so the fact that when she's talking to Emmett and she's beating herself up for not acting, it's like, you are acting. Well, and it brought up, uh, one of the things that really struck me on this watch is the the way society, not 
condemns, but it uh, doesn't acknowledge the power of a quote unquote woman's profession. Mm. Uh, if she's a clothing designer, if you know, making clothes, things like that, that scene is very, you know, gatherer as opposed to hunter, yep. not as traditionally needy. feminine exactly. domestic art form. I picked up on that too. The fact that she employs that to her salvation. It's, the, it's like one of the most important things that she can do. Yeah. She can take a couple things around the house, yeah. turn it into something that during an alien attack keeps her alive. That's right. Emmett had his role, to be fair. Let's talk about a nice guy without quotation marks. He was great. He was really And great. I like that it kind of inverses uh, this because I remember first watching the film and you see someone and he's coded as, oh my gosh, for lack of a better term, a bit of a hick. Yeah. But he's lovely, charming, kind ally to her. Yeah. And he's, you know, lower middle class. And it's kind of recodifying so many of the other characters like him in past horror films. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the performance is great. And when he dies, I was horrified. Yeah. I was so upset yeah. because you like him so much. And you're terrified for her. Yeah. It's different now without Emmett there. Everything's different. So I've been kind of on and off watching another movie in the midst of all of this, which I also realized tied to 10 Cloverfield Lane a little bit. And it's a film from the late 90s called Blast from the Past. Oh my God, I remember that. And Alicia Silverstone. Wait, how do you watch a movie off and on? You know, I'm working from home now, so I've got like a short lunch break because I've got a lot of stuff on the go that day. I'm like, you know. 20 minutes at a time? Yeah. Okay. And frankly, that's the easiest way to watch that. It's working. (laughs) And and it's kind of like a a flip of this film where, um, you know, this bunker, I think in that film and this film acts as preserving something. And in Blast from the Past, it's preserving all these good things, all this kind of politeness, this good 60s energy that happened. And kind of Brandon Fraser, when he leaves this bunker as an adult, having been raised there his whole life, he begins to spread this goodness around him and people kind of get into it. Whereas here, this bunker is a preservation of, frankly, make America great again. Mm. It's so creepy and weird and it's awful and Michelle knows it and I think Emmett knows it too Mm -hmm. but they're putting up with it because what's out there seems so fucking scary. It's like a microcosm of actual life, right? Where we have these authoritarian leaders but what are we going to do? Like, What are you going to do? Kill them? Burn them with acid? Go live in the woods outside of society? So it kind of brought me back to uh, someone who I studied a lot in university and um, I brought his writings into my first book, Films of the New French Extremity and this guy theater practitioner and thinker and writer by the name of Antonin Artaud. And his big treatise is a book called Theater and It's Double, which is available uh, for free uh, via PDF online. We'll link it in the show notes. I've absolutely talked about him before on this show. But I don't think I've talked about this theory in particular, which is this notion of theater and the plague. So while 10 Cloverfield Lane doesn't necessarily deal with a disease necessarily, it deals with that need to hide. It Mm -hmm. deals with that need to, as we are all doing now, isolating, quarantining, being safe, being precautious, all of those things. So for him, for our toad, theater and acting is really rooted in the body uh, and it's about true and authentic expression. So when he was writing all this, you know, in the late 20s and kind of early mid 30s of the last century, you know, you're coming off of the very beginnings of experimental theater. Mm. Before then, you've got a lot of, you know, people standing on stage 
pontificating and saying monologues and good things happen to the good people, mm-hmm. i.e. marriage, and bad things happen to the bad people, they die or go to jail. Mm-hmm. It's all very normalizing. And our toad really wanted to break free of that. And uh, he had a very tragic life. He was institutionalized. He never kind of got to see this stuff come to light. Mm-hmm. But his writings have become incredibly influential and a lot of people have picked up on it. And in my first book, I actually make the argument that his version of theater cruelty is very important to New French extremity. But for our cases here, our toad is really interested in the plague or the notion of a plague. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of theories around this that stem from get a lot of health issues. Again, he was institutionalized to so this notion of being othered in some way. But he was interested in this plague, a kind of notion of a virus because as he understood it, and still relatively true to this day, a plague or a virus will affect your brain and your lungs. And Artaud makes the argument that those are the two organs that can be manipulated, thought and breath. You can change the way you think Mm -hmm. if you want to. You can be open to new ideas. You can learn, you can read, you can experience, and that will help you evolve. And you can actually manipulate your breath. So if you're having Mm -hmm. panic attacks, people tell you to breathe, just breathe. And if you kind of play around with your breath, certainly as I was forced to do and was actually graded on in theater school, you can do a lot of shit with your breath. In all the theater acting stuff that I was doing in my early 20s, it was all about dropping your breath to your diaphragm, so your lower belly. That's where you get a lot of control. That's where you can get really good projection. A lot of singers have to use it, opera singers in particular. And when you breathe out of your lungs, if you're breathing in your chest, it tends to be really shallow breath. Mm. It tends to mean like you're panicking or you're nervous. You're in a panic attack, something. So oftentimes, one of the easiest things you can do, you're with someone who's having a panic attack or you yourself are having one, is to try to slow your breath and control it. So for him, manipulating those two things was manipulating and disrupting natural functions. And he was very anti-natural functions because he believed them to be manipulated, to be kind of codified by this institutionalized way of thinking. And that there was actually more authenticity by growling, by screaming, by being like just authentic and human. And it was messy and it was real. And that theater should be like the plague. It should affect the way you think. It should affect the way you breathe, whether acting on stage or in the audience. If you're watching something and you're scared, your breath gets more shallow. Uh, you, you kind of don't think as rationally because Zelda isn't in your bedroom. She's in the fucking movie, but I don't necessarily know that. It's all of these things that do it. And so his thing was that a contagion is uncontrollable and that it reroutes human intentions, turning them into pure energy. And that's how it affects an audience. So I think where it kind of fits into 10 Cloverfield Lane is this bunker, this idea of this bunker being this last bastion of control, of resoluteness of patriarchal society Mm -hmm. is controlling them. It is the final resistance to change. It is that last gasp of the status quo that suffocates Michelle until she actually has to blow it the fuck up. Mm -hmm. We're using this theater metaphor that's like the bunker is like the kind of nice play where everyone gets married at the end and someone goes to jail. But that's not how life is. Life isn't that binary of good and evil. It's messy and it should be messy. And it's all grayscale. I love that commentary about the brain and the breath because the brain's going to do its thing. And your breath, like... You will keep breathing if you're not thinking about it, but you do have the power to harness 
both those things mindfully. And that is where change comes from. That's where growth comes from. And I think, I think that has a really beautiful allegory to you know, the kind of life we're living in now where we can bunker down and emerge from this pandemic business as usual. We can carry forward white supremacy. We can carry forward capitalism and everything we're doing wrong and make it the new normal. Or we can rebuild and perhaps the old things need to, I don't think they need to die. I just think they need to be uh, recognized and reassessed. You need to be mindful of how you're breathing and how you're thinking. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of the conversation I've seen online is about ways to change it that are actually quite simple, like defund the police. That's not getting rid of every police ever. It's just taking away a lot of their weapons, demilitarizing them and putting those resources back into the community where people really fucking need them, really need them. And thereby hopefully preventing so many unnecessary deaths, you know, rerouting the kind of systemic racism and actually putting it towards community and people and making sure that everyone is okay so that this social safety net we were all relying on actually catches as many people as possible, hopefully everyone, and not just white privilege. Yeah, it's the future I am hopeful about. And I feel like in my darkest days of the last couple of months, I remain hopeful that this isn't the new normal. The past isn't the new normal. The new normal is something that we have yet to imagine and change is happening and it's happening from our homes and on our streets right now, but it's got to gotta trickle down when we come out. It has to. I believe that. But there are some who are going to resist that. And, uh, and we have to contend with how to deal with these people. And I have done some reading. Uh, I've seen some interesting articles about Trump supporters and, you know, uh, Republican versus Democrat. You know, Alex and I are in Canada, so it's kind of more liberal versus conservative. And it's a big, complex, topic, but I have aligned myself so far with one side that I really, really struggle to understand the other side. I really, really struggle to understand anyone who would follow a leader like Donald Trump. And so I have actually made an effort toward, okay, what are these people saying? Like, look past the red fucking hats, look past the fucking idiots who are so, so vocal on Facebook. And like, there are thoughtful Republicans out there who have justifications for how they feel and what it is that they value. And it's a big complex thing. And it's work that I'm doing on my part that I think will make me better for it. But it all comes back to conspiracy theories. Want to talk about that? Ooh. Howard is a conspiracy theorist. And it's hard to say who he would vote for. It's hard to say his political affiliations, but he has definitely bought into the idea of how it was meant to be was a man and a woman and a man's in charge and this and this and that. He's got a very clear-cut idea of that. Yeah, and his idea is like back into when it was more acceptable to marry a 14-year-old. Oh, yes. So conspiracy theories are an attempt to put a powerful actor behind a powerful event. And I'm mindfully using a singular powerful actor behind a singular powerful event. So for example, uh, the witch burnings across Europe. That That scapegoating was believed to solve everything that was wrong. And hallmark characteristic of a conspiracy theorist is that everything is very simplified. It boils down to one simple thing. There is no complexity of factors. So when we look at things like poverty, poverty is a very complex subject. 
There are so many factors that contribute to it. But when we talk about a singular event like a virus or a terrorist attack or like just a single aspect of a very complex issue like global warming, like mm-hmm. a, the environmental degradation is big. Global warming is a specific slice of that. And it can be boiled down to one fundamental thing by the conspiracy theorist. And so the paradox of conspiracy theorists is that it's all speculative. It's not based in fact. And for that reason, they can't be disproven. They can't be proven either, but conspiracy theorists tend to glom onto the fact that it can't be disproven. And conspiracy theorists, um, I did some research, and these are people who lack agency. These are people who feel like they're not in control of their lives, and that can be economic, social, or whatever. And they are served by these theories in some way. And uh, we tend to think of white men in tinfoil hats living in their mom's basement. We tend to think of Howard, but it's actually a wide swath of the population. And there are people on the left who are into conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Um, and the fundamental personality traits are obviously paranoia, suspicion of others, and authority. So basically, when something big goes down, something like 9-11, or indeed the coronavirus, they want the simplest explanation, the one that gives them a single clear target. That goddamn 5G. That goddamn 5G. Perfect example. It's China. It's Russia. It's this one thing. Targeting a singular agent is so much easier to deal with than a generalized fear of something like terrorism. It's actionable. It's it's like kind of the specific and not the systemic. That's right. But it also makes it really easy to deny one thing. So insofar as there are certain personality traits that can increase one's disposition to conspiracy theories, like being paranoid, uh, being abused, being distrustful of authority or whatever, the conspiracy theory that one might choose does have a political dimension because conspiracy theories are a way for disempowered people to pursue a certain political agenda. If you are worried about the environment and the idea of global warming terrifies you, you might choose to believe it's a hoax and you might find evidence to not disprove that it's not a hoax and that's enough for you. You know what I mean? I think so. And like this can be very dangerous. Obviously anti-vaxxers, they pose a real threat to the rest Mm -hmm. of the population. People who are denying the coronavirus now. It can also engender racism, nationalism, misogyny if a whole group is targeted. For example, the witch hunts like I mentioned. Anti-Semitism comes into play a lot here. And now you've got Trump who is absolutely a conspiracy theorist literally sowing nationalism, misogyny, and white supremacy. And insofar as I find it so difficult to have empathy for anyone who would follow him, we can't deny that he's offering something that is serving people and it's serving enough people. And that's something we need to look at. It might be tempting to be like, we need to remove Trump and that'll solve all our problems. But is that not the logic of the conspiracy theorist? This is a way bigger, more complex issue than one person. God, is this the Cloverfield paradox? Well, I did actually kind of come up with a bit of research from a book called uh, Hollywood 9-11 by Tom Pollard. Uh, We'll link the book in the show notes. And uh, he he kind of delves into a variety of films, mainly genre films, horror, action, sci-fi that came out kind of in the 10 years after Mm 9-11 and how they were impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And for Pollard, post 9-11 science fiction expresses fear, anxiety, panic, paranoia about humanity's ultimate fate in a chaotic universe. It's 
trying to kind of like isolate, much like a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. that, you know, 9-11, you can link it to something like an alien invasion yep. with the first Cloverfield film. In films of this era, the threat isn't terrorists, but an outside force such as aliens, which is really common. And Pollard identifies apocalypse, the word apocalypse, mm-hmm. as meaning lifting a veil, one that shrouds humanity's fate at the end of the world. And it's that kind of like, do you want to look in the mystery box? Yeah, Do you yeah. want to fucking know how this is going to go down and how this is going to end? It's exactly how it feels right now. It's exactly how it feels. And then he cites also an American philosopher, Dennis Dutton. And Dutton's whole thing is that basically because of widespread guilt over contemporary life's wastefulness, overindulgence leads to guilt, which leads to punishment, which leads to penance and a hopeful eventual reconciliation. Hmm. So if we feel like, oh, I actually don't have it that bad. I don't have to go work as a surf in the field every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though my life's not great, I at least have a couple things that bring me comfort. Or, you know, I live in a you know billion dollar mansion. You know, <laughs> there's a there's room in between. There's yeah. room in between. Um, anyway, kind of feeling this guilt over it yeah. or even, you know, a form of white privilege or something like that. That's what I was thinking. It leads to, you know, this kind of critique of contemporary life's wastefulness and yeah. it's overindulgent, which then you have guilt. Yeah. And then you need to see us punished in some way. So what is this punishment? Is it the coronavirus? Is it this? Is it that? And then I think it kind of like hangs its hooks on these conspiracy theories that if you identify it, if you look in that mystery box, mm-hmm. you're going to see some scary shit. Mm-hmm. But you might have penance at the end. Mm-hmm. Not Mike Pence, but penance. <laughs> so to apply that back to Howard, here's this lonely white man whose wife left him and took her daughter with her. All we know for sure is from his perspective, his wife turned the daughter against him, which you know, we've already talked about the nice guy rhetoric. Who knows what the reality could be? But in his view, he is the victim. He's ex-military. He's got some money. He's got some survival skills. He's a pedophile, which is arguably the most reviled kind of sexual deviant I can think of. And there's no known cure. He's fucked. He's miserable, he's lonely, he's disempowered. And so he does something that makes him feel powerful and competent. And he builds this bunker that could withstand just about any threat that makes him feel like he's in control, like he's ready for everything. And he even says at one point, like, you people. There's a really, like, vague, thinly veiled you people. And we don't know exactly what he's talking about. I feel like he also makes a remark about the Russians at some point, which is a very interesting example of misinformation and disinformation. And like he equates the Russians on the same level as like an alien attack. That's right. It's just as paranoid. But again, it gives you a singular target. It gives you a singular thing to look for in the news. And if you look for it, you're going to find it again and again. So to me, like Howard is just, he's a really early example of what would later crystallize as incel culture, which sprouted up in the early aughts and would peak as an actual terrorist concern from 2018 to present. But, you know, here's this movie where he's calling the shots and I just watching this film now in 2020 I was like holy fuck well and maybe this is a good time to kind of talk about the time this film came out to where we are now let's do that because it's been four years I don't think it was editing that aged you those four <laughs> years I think it was the fucking world um global warming probably hasn't helped either um so yeah I, I kind of kept thinking when I was watching this I remember going to see this film in the theaters and having many feelings and thoughts afterwards did we see it together do you recall no, no? I saw it with Chris okay okay and uh fine well, hey you can 
came out to the East End. Still um, I know. That's why I had to move to the West End. So this film was released in March 2016. March, okay. Donald Trump took office January 2017. Oh, shit. He was elected November, November 2016. Yeah, yeah. And watching it this time, I kept having all of these fucking thoughts about immigration. And looking back, Googling Trump policy immigration... <laughs> And seeing all the shit that has gone down since he took office. And, like, there are very few places in this world, if any, that have good immigration policy. It's a fucking shit show. It's incredibly racist. It's incredibly awful. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that we all need to do a lot fucking better on. Mm -hmm. But it just, again, 10 Cloverfield Lane is an American film and and the kind of uh, Make America Great sentiment that's slowly permeating under the surface of this film mm-hmm. I think is very present. Now, in my research, so in 2018 Trump kind of came forward with his quote-unquote zero-tolerance immigration policy. Uh-huh. And what was once a misdemeanor if you were a Mexican crossing you know, the border, yeah. it was a misdemeanor. You'd kind of get a slap on the wrist and turn back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't really help the problem, but uh, it was certainly something that was tolerable for a first-time offender. Right. Still not good. Uh, but in 2018, there were then huge criminal charges. Yeah. They were detained. ICE, their families were separated. Children yeah. are still held in cages. Still held in cages. Still. Um, and it just, it all kind of came together for me when um, Michelle, when she wakes up, she has a, a really hurt leg that's mm-hmm. in a brace uh, from the car accident and how, how we're bringing her in. And then, you know, she's getting to talk to Emmett and he has a broken arm. And she's like, did you get it trying to get out? And he said, no. I was trying to get hit. Mm-hmm. And it's like this kind of dream of America, the mm-hmm. American dream mm-hmm. that, yes, there's still some truth to it, but it is an honestly very false truth. Yeah. And it's so embedded in so many horrible things um, that we've talked about. And yes, some people made it work and some people have done it and they are held up as the success stories, but it is often used as a predatory thing to strip people of uh, investments of anything that they have. Education. Education, everything. Any cultural capital. And so I feel like Howard in this film is the kind of colonist mentality. He's got this kind of bunker. I made it. I control it. It's nice. I paid down for here. it. It's mine. I've picked Michelle as a quote unquote desirable. Yeah. And Emmett is the quote unquote undesirable. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me that these are three white characters, three very white characters. Yeah. Uh, certainly in appearance, but what they've come to represent to me is something very different. Um, mm. You know, Michelle is, you know, the pretty white girl, and Emmett is maybe a lower status white man. Mm-hmm. But I think he represents, you know, working on a farm, working with his hands, all these things that we have often come to rely on immigrants for. Right. And it just shows that the problem within it because he's so to Howard so easily disposed of yeah yet we as an audience have come to I think for many of us truly care about him yeah and I think it just complicates this whole notion of who we let in and who we let out and how we let people in Emmett is willing to break his fucking arm and he's in a cast for the whole film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he fucking built that bunker yeah you would think if anyone gave him a ticket to survive within it again it's a great allegory like you're saying to not just immigration but slavery we built this place and we don't get to reap its rewards no it's in some ways it's screaming so loudly at yeah. me yeah but 
but in other ways, it's very subtle. So it's in some ways a more palatable thought process for it. If you're, you know, white and you're privileged and it's scary for you to confront your white privilege and yeah. your white fragility, maybe it's a way to open up those ideas yeah. and confront. It's a way to privilege. breathe mindfully instead of automatically. Yeah. And I did, um, I'm sure you all know, listening that we are dear friends with the podcast, Gay Lords of Darkness, and they just dropped an friends, episode. Friends, fans, oh, admirers, they all are of amazing. that. amazing. If you aren't listening to them, go listen to them because they are the best. Yeah, turn us off. Yeah, like when we wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, um, at the time of recording their most recent episode, they're such huge fans of Suspiria 2018. Uh-huh. And they did a fantastic episode where director of uh, Suspiria 2018, Luca Guadagnino, and the screenwriter David Kajenic uh, were on. And it's fascinating. I love that they did that. Fasc- it's so amazing. And it's such a wonderful interview. And if you're feeling shitty about the state of horror or the state of the world, go listen to that episode because it will give you hope. It'll give you ideas. It certainly recharged my energy and my being listening to that episode. And uh, the screenwriter says, they all say so many fascinating things, but he said something that actually made me stop on my walk when I was listening to it and just go, whoa. (laughs) And he talked about guilt and nostalgia being two sides of the same coin. And that if you're trying to look back at the past, like Suspiria, the original, there's a nostalgia to it. And he, I think intentionally, him and Luca talk about, you know, if you're going to set a film about a dance school in Berlin in 1977, there's guilt there. It's scary. It's weird. And those kind of two things are are so deeply tied together. And I think that's something that this film, for me, 10 Cloverfield Lane, really wrestles with. Mm. That kind of nostalgia and preservation that Howard has versus the kind of guilt and tension that I think Michelle and Emmett feel that is so predominant. A younger generation who want things to be different. And that hope for difference. Mm. And that even, you know, I think that's why um, in some ways I've wrestled with finding the ending a little bit cheesy, but I'm ultimately glad it ends that way. Just her driving into danger, a Cloverfield monster, but something. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned before that her turning toward Houston is kind of a redemption for her, is kind of like a sealing of a loop of her not fleeing. But I also feel like this film could have easily ended with her escaping the bunker in her suit and it could have ended there. And I would have been like, you escaped, you fucking did it. You fought, you know, like sometimes running away is fighting. And I would have been quite content with that. But again, whatever the term is, we say shoehorning. (laughs) There it is. But yeah, I think the kind of ultimate destruction of the bunker is the realization that nostalgia is an inherently problematic sentiment and idea because, you know, you look back and like, that's what the Make America Great thing is about. Like, Mm -hmm. when was America great? Mm -hmm. And for who? Mm -hmm. And the answers to those questions are really shitty. And, you know, do you want to be with that? Or do you want to face into the unknown and hope and work and do your best for something better that benefits everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we are. We're driving into the future. That's exactly where we are. Holy shit. I didn't think this movie would take us here. You didn't think we'd be driving into the unknown? I mean, like you said, we we conceived of this summer of plague programming as stuff that would address what we're dealing with with the pandemic, but so much bigger than that. It is. Fucked up moment in history, guys, but uh, we're here with you. Yeah. I don't know if we have much more hopeful things to say because it is the unknown and we are all in this weird process of transitioning and figuring out 
how we can be leaders, yeah. how we can be allies. What to take with us and what to tear the fuck down. Yeah. And it's okay to be scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. But it's not going to stop me from working and learning and doing my best and changing and evolving like everyone. Yeah. We all have the possibility of doing it. The potential. Yeah. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about next month. So what happens when you get out of the bunker? What are the infinite possibilities? There are so many. We're going to talk about two very different films. Yes. Very different films, but I'm very excited to talk about both of them. The first one is a little bit the bastard child of its creator, but it is Mimic, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. And then we're also going to talk about Girl with All the Gifts. Mm -hmm. Not the gifts, the gifts. That's my theater training. Nice. Um, uh, which came out a couple years ago and uh, another wonderful film that I'm very excited to talk about. And they tackle the future in very different ways that yeah. I'm very excited to explore because, you know, they call Hollywood, they call films the dream factory. So yeah. they're about us dreaming about the possibilities. That's right. And I think it's also worth mentioning that I meant to bring this up when you were talking about 9-11. It was, it flipped through my head and then you said something else that <laughs> flipped my head again. But um, when 9-11 happened, a lot of horror films were shelved indefinitely mm -hmm. because they felt that, you know, people weren't really ready for certain themes, certain topics, certain moods. And it's very likely that we will see that happen again. I don't like to peer into my crystal ball and talk about the future of horror, but I think that's perhaps worth mentioning. I don't know. Do you, do you ever see that show F is for Family? No. It's an animated comedy show that's on Netflix mm -hmm. and they just put out a new season. And it was kind of like, oh, like a new season of this. Like, I guess because it's animated, yeah. I, people can work from home and stuff. But there's a lot of racial tensions depicted in that show. And it's just like, holy shit, I'm receiving this now so differently than I would two weeks ago, much less several months ago. And so I think that's going to be part of the conversation for mm -hmm. the time being. So we decided to do these two films what, a couple of months yeah. ago. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to tackle them with this whole new perspective and this whole new environment that we're inhabiting right now. That's it. It's a scary time, but if the silver lining is opportunity and possibilities. Let's see what we can seize and let's see what we can change. Yeah, that's still here. Let's drive towards that. Let's let's turn the ship. Let's wrench that steering wheel and go in the right direction and hang in there, guys. I feel like, fuck, last episode we wrapped up on a take care of yourself and that's no less true this episode right now. Take care, keep busy, do the work and uh, we're here with you. Like I said, we've got a whole lot more content coming up on our Patreon, but uh, this episode will be free on our feed. Next episode will be free on our feed and uh, everything's free on our feed. Yeah. That's how it stays. There's just extra stuff on the Patreon if you guys want to. If you want. We understand that times are really tough, but we're here, we're around and uh, until the next circle of hell. Office hours are closed.
say 